Studio computers online. Archiving 44K. T minus 30 seconds. Server connection confirmed. T minus 25 seconds. NSA doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanic. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Len Osanik, and today we're speaking to Libby Handros, producer, and John Kirby, director of a documentary, Four Died Trying. It's going to be a series. So first of all, I have seen it, and I highly recommend it. Let me just ask you, you have a website for the film where people can go see? Yes, we have a website. It's www.fordiedtrying.com. Go there, click on the watch button, and then there's four places where you can buy and watch right now. And soon there'll be a fifth because we're waiting for Amazon, which will hit any day now. Okay, good. Is there one you recommend over the others? Here's the thing, Len. I mean, we're on Apple, we're on Google, we're on Vimeo, we're on YouTube, and we're on our distributor's website. Anyone who has any of those things, watch them anywhere. We've been sat upon, we feel, by Amazon. That's, you know, that's the... The covert uh, or the unspoken truth uh, here, we've, been, we've had it with them for over a month now, and they're doing a manual review, quote unquote. So uh, I know a lot of people buy things on Amazon, So, and a lot of people have been expressing in the comments on Facebook that they are upset that it's not on Amazon. And we, I can say to them that, you know, we've been trying, and they just they don't give us good explanations. And in our distributor, they don't tell what's happening. And uh, we're just waiting. So hopefully one day that'll happen. But it's sort of interesting. They told us it's on, under manual review, which they do with controversial material. So, so that's what's happening. The prologue, you know, we, this is a series. What you saw was the prologue, which is kind of a, you know, an overview of everything that's to come. Uh, and, and so it, in that way, it's, it's kind of almost like an extended trailer, if you will. And then, right, but I want to tell people that it's an hour long. It's not just a quick trailer. Right, that's exactly right. It is, it's a standalone short film that gives you a pretty good sense of things. I mean, it convinced my father, who was in the Kennedy administration in the Civil Rights Division, who used to say, you know, you'd ask him, who killed Kennedy, Dad? And he'd say three words, Lee Harvey Oswald. But in seeing these four men together and what they were all fighting for, put in the same hour-long treatment, he, he said, well, it, they gain strength from each other. It does make you pause. And he started to tell me things that he'd never told me before. So this is, you know, uh, it's a standalone, as I said. And, you know, people like Robert Kennedy, speechwriter, said, you know, it's potentially a national document. You know, so just the prologue is, is out there is definitely something that can, you know, spark people to rethink 
that time period on its own. But it's the first of many things, yeah. Good. When I was just doing a little research on Libby's career, I noticed that you had done a previously some, I was looking on YouTube, and some of your videos, they say that they have been, uh, I should have wrote the word down, but they have been deleted due to some kind of, and they were on COVID, and I and some of the previous ones you had Yeah, done. this is both of us, yeah, right. Yeah, that series. was so interesting. Libby, so you can talk about it. When yeah, uh, people so listening, just wait one second, just... Uh, yeah, I, it's very like when you say Amazon is giving you a review and it has to be done by a person. I mean, that mm. which should tell listeners right now how good this is, that it's something that they, they should get before somehow it's disappeared, like with other <laughs> critiques. And I, I started watching a few of your other documentaries on COVID and some of those just because there were some things I hadn't known about. And it's very interesting. So that, that's why I'm just um, really happy to promote people doing good work um no sorry i did i did interrupt you what did you no, want to say no thank you no you no thank you so much i was going to say the series that you're talking about is called perspectives on the pandemic we have 26 episodes i believe and we started in march of 2020 uh we were amongst the first maybe the first to come on the air to talk about the fact that the official narrative as it was being said to us there might be a problem with it in our first interview was with um, uh, John Ioannidis, Dr. John Ioannidis of Stanford University, who was at the time the most respected statistical um, epi- meta, epi- epi- meta epidemiologist just in the world. And he just came on and he said there was something about the case fatality rate that wasn't adding up. And so after like, what was it, two or three million views, John, we were suddenly shadow banned. And it just disappeared, saying we violated community standards. Nobody could get an answer as to what was happening. So we were amongst the first who were censored before even anybody understood that there was a censorship industrial complex that was part of the COVID narrative. Yeah. And we w- went on from there to, to interview um, a, a, a scientist from Rockefeller University who also, you know, after several million hits, it was taken down. And then... Um, the New York Post covered that, and then Laura and Tucker covered it, and they were the only people who did the censorship that was starting to happen, and we kept going, and um, from time to time, YouTube would take them down, but we would put them out on our website, and we put them out on, on other streaming services, yeah. and kept persevering because it was too yeah. important a story not to tell. Yeah, I mean, they told you right there, if they didn't want to hear other scientific opinions from extremely credentialed scientists that there was something they were hiding. You know, never, as you well know, Len, never is, are the good guys on the side of censorship, right? That's always the bad guys. And so, you know, and the whole point of science is to be fallibilistic and to, you know, to entertain, uh, you know, divergent views and uh, different theories and, you know, that, that there had to be only one narrative from the beginning on COVID, one way of handling it, one, you know, all these particular mandates, all of which have now been realized to be and debunked as, you know, as being all about control and not, nothing to do with public health. So, you know, we, for, for various reasons, we were, you know, able to smell that right away, which was not something that a lot of people on the left did, sadly. There are a few uh, that did, and, and that's why it was, you know, interesting for us to be kind of covered just by the New York Post and then Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, which were, you know, shows I hadn't really watched before. 
but um, there, there we were. And, you know, some of our shows are still up. Amazingly, you know, we've got an undercover nurse who we gave glasses with a camera to who was at Elmhurst, uh, where she'd come from Florida, where they had saved everybody with a protocol of hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc, vitamin D. I confirmed that with her hospital, uh, you know, the, the hospital chiefs there. And, you know, she came to Elmhurst where they're venting people and calling them COVID when they're not. And, you know, they get 39,000. You hear the nurses and everyone talking about how they're getting 39,000 per COVID patient, you know. And, uh, you know, it's it's just this uh, unremittent, you know, you just see how what profound malpractice is going on. Uh, and we also have one that's still up for some reason called, you know, blood clots and beyond where Dr. Shushart Bhakti, you know, uh, forecast that people would be dying of blood clots from the, from the MRNA shot. And, in, and that was in 2021, early spring of 2021 after they'd really just been released. And lo and behold, that's what we're seeing now. The, the epidemic of sudden adult death syndrome and deaths in young people and working age people, due to inflammation and turbo cancers and myocarditis. And so anyway, all of it was there. And, uh, you know, yes, they, yeah, they, that's they the one definitely I was watching. And, and yeah, there was only one or two there. And I got the implication that, um, uh, that there was a lot more. So you say you did 20, I'll have to look into that. And also yeah. another series that I thought that was interesting, the American ruling class, and that's something I'm probably going to be uh, trying to get into. That's yeah, that's just a one-off. <laughs> oh, okay, that's sure. One- but some of those topics yeah. pique my interest. Now let's good, just get good. into this. The Four That Died Trying. It's a documentary on John Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. Just going back, what was the motivation to start a documentary series on these four? Well, uh, the, the the idea came from our executive producer, actually. I mean, we've been working on some version of something like this for o- over a decade or more, two decades. We were going to call it The War on Us, U.S. before. But we were introduced to a guy, Mark Gordon, who had a great idea, which was he asked the question, really, which was, what was what what did the children of these major assassinated figures think about what happened to their fathers and that was the starting point and we then it quickly expanded to you know who were the living relatives who were the living friends and associates who were the enemies who were some of the first generation researchers fellow victims you know so we wanted to get as many we, we it's kind of like a studs turkel oral history and we wanted to collect as many of, of those as we could. And so what began as a sort of, it was going to be a single feature, became, uh, really focused on the kids, became this, you know, <laughs> epic series where we've been shooting this series for seven years. We have over 120 interviews uh, and counting. And, you know, it's taken us in all kinds of different directions. We've learned a tremendous amount. Uh, and, you know, but the first thing that we learned in talking to Vince Salandria, who is kind of the great godfather of all Kennedy researchers who sadly passed away during uh, the height of, uh, well, well, wearing a mask in the hot Philadelphia sun, he hit face planted and on the sidewalk. But the point is, is that Vince had a great thesis, which was the honest government thesis. And this is really the root of our series. You know, what you ask, what would an honest government do? Would an honest government, uh, you know, not interview witnesses at the crime scene? Would they destroy evidence? 
would they uh, announce, you know, an hour after they had caught Lee Harvey Oswald that, you know, they had gotten the guy, there was, you know, there was no conspiracy. They tell this to the people on the cabinet plane and the Air Force One coming back from Dallas. You know, would they do all that? Would they, you know, dry clean Governor Connolly's clothes and bang out the dents on the limousine and all the bullet holes? And would they allow the prime suspect to be killed while in police custody? You know, these are the things that an honest government that was truly looking into what just happened to the elected leader of the country would not do. And they did all of these things. So Vince, his whole premise based on that is that these uh, all these killings really you can apply it to all of them are all false mysteries there's no mystery as to who killed you know the kennedys or malcolm x or martin luther king these are state assassinations because all of these guys were embarked on a path that would you know end war sooner embarrass the united states in the height of the cold war or, or you know withdrawal from vietnam or going up against the establishment in in dozens of ways that with with their prominence were just unacceptable to the state so that's our premise that this is a false mystery and you can anyone can clearly apply that litmus test and figure it out right okay so you have a collection you've gone out and you've done interviews you say over a hundred interviews how do you start the storytelling by uh leaving this first episode as a prologue well i think the prologue kind of serves as as is similar to a, a prologue or a preface in a book where we lay out what the theory is and we give you a taste of what the argument is going to be over the next say 20 or so episodes and you will learn more and you will learn more about what these people were doing that was so terrifying to the state that they had to be assassinated. And I think that's really the crux of the series. It's not, all, it's not so much about, you know, bullet trajectories and things of that nature. It's more like what was um, President Kennedy doing on the eve of his assassination that was so threatening to the powers that be? What was Martin Luther King doing? What was Malcolm X doing? What was Bobby doing? What were they doing that made them so uh, uh, terrifying to the state that they had to be assassinated and assassinated publicly? I mean, JFK, they could have just rigged the election so that he didn't win again in 1964. But no, it had to be publicly done to, make, to, to teach a lesson and to show other people who might think along the same lines that this is not a good thing to do. I mean, one of the things that everybody, all four men have in common is that they were talking about peace. Uh, Kennedy was making reproachment with Khrushchev. Martin Luther King was killed a year to the day that, a year to the day that he came out against the Vietnam War at his speech at Riverside Church. Malcolm X, who knew? He was out earlier against the war in Vietnam than anybody. And of course, Bobby was going to get us out of Vietnam. So it turns out that uh, preaching peace, so to speak, is not good for one's longevity. Now, you just said, how many episodes do you have planned for this? Oh, at least at least 20. And Oh, yeah. my goodness. I have to tell you, I'm wearing a headset. I was sitting down. When you said 20 episodes, I just stood up. Oh, my goodness, because <laughs> if they are as good as this first episode, uh, this is something that everybody is going to have to get behind. Uh, I'm so glad to, to hear that because, you know, I, I studied the topic. And there's always some other documentary. A couple of years ago, there was a dog and pony show where the survivors of the uh, Warren Commission made a film saying just, you know, the Warren Commission had it right. And they took that on tour. And, you know, it's pathetic. 
and and yet here you're getting to the nitty gritty like the first episodes ending at this this big looming thing is the vietnam war these guys were against the war it could be all war but you know but at least here's something you could focus on and the the american uh, political structure did not want that they wanted it going full speed ahead and here were four people killed with uh, impunity, there's there's no real investigation. If there was, they had the thumb on it. You know, nothing mm. nothing was going to change. They were going ahead with this Vietnam War and others. You okay. know, it's kind of like if you don't learn from the past, you're going to repeat it. And when they see Afghanistan, we see Ukraine today, money mm. going, mm-hmm. and, and you know, that might be different. But anyway, regardless, mm, yeah. Um, well, no, yeah, it's all the same thing. And interestingly, a lot of it is flipped. You know, so. You watch the prologue. The next chapter, chapter one, is about the Red Scare. It's about, you know, it starts with the military-industrial complex speech that Eisenhower gives. We actually show you a little scene part of that speech about the technocracy, about the kind of the scientific technical elite that he worries is rising up. Uh, We should go on mute if we're... and. you know, then it goes into the kind of the background, right? After World War II, the emergence of the Cold War, and in this country, the Red Scare and the the McCarthyite period. And of course, it's it's as Mark Crispin Miller and will will show Professor Mark Crispin Miller from NYU talks about in the film. This is not McCarthyism is really a misnomer because this begins before McCarthy's on the scene and it lasts 15 years and it's. It's a period of unprecedented repression in the United States. I mean, there was the first Red Scare and the Palmer Raids after World War One, but this takes it kind of almost in a way to another level where, you know, people are suffused with fear and paranoia. They're, they're too scared. You know, a, a paper in the Midwest did a famous survey where they tried to get people to sign what amounted to the Declaration of Independence, and 111 out of 112 people wouldn't put their names on it because they were too frightened. And when you look at uh, that period, um, it's so, it rhymes so much with the kind of totalitarian period of the past three years. And what's interesting is that things have sort of flipped. So back at at that time, it was kind of the right wing accusing the left of always being the tool of Russia, right? I mean, anytime, if you were pro-labor or pro-civil rights, or anything that smacked of progressive ideals or intellectualism, even, you know, there you had various people, uh, you, principally from the right, but not always, you know, sort of looking askance and saying, ah, oh, you know, a pinko, huh? Yeah, okay. And so people were, you know, gotten to a whole kind of self censorship, and you know, they they really held back their how they felt, and they, you know, this is a period of movies as we show, like you know. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where, you know, as Mark Christopher Miller points out, it's not really the fear of communism, it's the fear of being accused of communism that's on display. So it's the kind of the massive conformity on display. And so fast forward to today, and now it's, you know, the so-called left, though I don't think of the Democratic Party as left, but it's the left accusing the, you know, the so-called conservatives of being the tools of Russia and, you know, it's Russia gate and Russia manipulating our elections and Russia, Russia, Russia. And so, you know, whether it, there's any truth to either of those accusations, either, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, you know, when there were, of course, 
some people who were Soviet spies uh, or today. I mean, really, you're talking about such a marginal number of people who were actually connected in any way to Russia, but it made the whole society on edge, just like, you know, with COVID and, you know, the Steele dossier and all this stuff now. I mean, I'm not a Trump supporter, but, you know, that whole nonsense about that, which they've admitted is nonsense, that Russia manipulated the election. Some people still believe it. So, you know, this is you know, this is the kind of thing that uh, they do in order to, you know, get people to fall into line. So it's just interesting that we've sort of flipped it on its head. And, you know, what the right was doing to the left, now the left so-called is doing to the right so-called. And, you know, you get the same patterns of paranoia and fear spreading like a virus. And that's, in fact, just what J. Edgar Hoover says about it. Communism is like a virus. And like a virus, it requires... And like an epidemic, it requires a quarantine. So anyway, that's it, it, a lot. A lot of rhymes between today and yesterday. Well, I do remember the bumper sticker kind of thing that would say "Better dead than red." You know? Yeah, that's and right. then the protester on the Vietnam War, where you saw all these uh, steel workers in New York, kind of thing, and they're saying, "My country, love it or leave it," meaning, yeah, doesn't matter right or wrong. We're not going to investigate the reasons behind the Vietnam War. We're just we're just going with it. You know, our government wouldn't right. lie to us. That's right. But now it's funny that the populist right, a lot of those guys who participated in that hard hat riot, as it was called, these days, they are among the skeptics, right? They're the ones saying, hey, why are we, you know, involved in Ukraine? Or look what happened in Afghanistan, the populist right. I mean, basically what you find out is that populism has been given a dirty name. But the fact is that populism, whether it has, you know, whether it's been labeled leftist, populism or rightist populism, populism is really where it's at. It's like the people know. The people know at various times. Back in the 1890s, it was a lot of Midwestern Republican populists who understood that big corporations and the government were getting together and colluding to uh, deprive them of their uh, economic uh, mobility and their freedom of speech and all that. There have been periods throughout time, the basic people of the earth, the salt of the earth, get this. They get called deplorables. They get called, you know, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, working class, you know, just, you know, expendables, but they are the ones who eventually get it. So those hard hat guys at that Vietnam war period were still kind of captured, but those same guys now are a lot savvier. They get, uh, whereas, you know, you see people in the sort of elite classes who just sort of, you know, unthinkingly said, oh, well, we have to support you know, whatever's happening in Ukraine, not knowing the whole history of our involvement there, creating trouble with NATO, et cetera. But uh, these guys kind of smelled it. So that's what the, our four men were on the side of the people. And that is what we're trying to get, you know, the people to realize is that, you know, forget these labels of left and right. It's, you know it when you see it, when you see totalitarianism and, you know, un illegitimate authority trying to get you to go to war, we're trying to strip you of rights. You have to stand up for it, and that's what these guys did. And they paid with for their paid with it for their with their lives. Now, when I've worked on some documentaries, we kind of have a timeline of of where we're going. Like you say, a prologue, then you know the introduction of the different uh, incidents, and then wrapping up to the you know the conclusions, and then what do you want them to leave with thinking about it. Mm. Now, so 
uh, right now I'm speaking to the producer and the director. Can you just briefly tell me your roles? And the two of you have worked on several things before. So, Libby, as producer, what do you come to, to this project with? Is, do you work on the script, or how do you guys collaborate? So, basically, these are not scripted documentaries. We let the interviews kind of guide us. So, the biggest hurdle for a film like this was getting the 120 interviews. I can think of very few people that we interviewed where we just emailed them and said, we'd like to interview you, and they said, when would you like to come? We, I spent a long time chasing most of those 120 people to get them to sit down and give us an interview. So that was, you know, a task unto itself. And then, of course, everybody that we've interviewed has written books and written articles and appeared in different films themselves. So you have to do all the research about them so that when you sit down to talk to them, you actually know what they've written before and what they've said before so that you can have a really meaningful conversation and get something beyond just the standard platitudes out of them. So John and I kind of collaborate on the question part, and sometimes he asks the question, sometimes I do, sometimes we both do. It depends. Some people respond better to a man. Some people respond better to a woman. That's just one of those intangibles that you can never be sure of until you sit down. And then, you know, John's the director, and he's also kind of the lead editor. So at the point at which we've kind of done the interviews, he starts working on shaping the stories and putting them together with a team of editors behind us. Right. Right. But in, in answer to your question, you know, everyone has to kind of do everything. And so, you know, we things are nominally divided up. But, uh, you know, it's Libby who's really, you know, securing, sitting on people, securing those interviews, figuring out how to move the army, get us there. And, you know, it took, it took years to get Bobby Kennedy Jr. I mean, it took, it, it, you know, we thought he'd be kind of low hanging fruit since he's the only one talking about the assassinations, you know, uh, among, in his family, he's the only one really openly talking about it. But, um, but that was harder than it, than it looked. And, and, and in answer to your question about what comes next and how we're shaping. I mean, basically the whole kind of first season, each of these parts, which each, which each of these guys will end, uh, you know, kind of part one with JFK ends when he gets shot. Uh, part two, which is the Malcolm X story ends when he's shot. And part three is uh, Martin and part four is Bobby. And then we pick up with kind of season two where we then go into the history of the citizen researchers who picked up where the government <laughs> left off, which was, you know, right away they left off on, on these investigations. They didn't investigate because they knew wh what they would find. They'd find themselves at the end. So we pick up with, you know, the people who started, you know, questioning the Warren report, the people who started, you know, like Vince Salandria, who started, you know, confronting har people like Arlen Specter, the, you know, the, the guy who came up with the magic bullet theory in public. So, you know, the, these are, the, the, we then go through the kind of cultural history of dealing with these assassinations and the, the various group, people like Bill Pepper, who, you know, was friends with Martin Luther King, but became, you know, a, a, an attorney for his accused killer and was, uh, you know, instrumental in getting so much information out to the public about what really happened to Dr. King. So, you know, this is, uh, this is what season two is about. It, it takes you all the way through the present and all the things that have been revealed in, uh, you know, various 
document releases, you know, what happened as a result of, you know, Bob Grodin going on the Geraldo show back in the 70s with Dick Gregory and showing the Zapruder film. You know, that kind of that led to um, the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the late 70s, which, you know, uh, because of the public demand after seeing the Zapruder film, they finally got to see it. It's been embargoed. And now you finally see that the president is clearly getting kind of shot from the front. So people are like, wait a second, what happened? And so the House Select Committee is formed. And after a lot of shenanigans, it basically it does conclude that there was a conspiracy, but it's a very limited conspiracy. So they do what everyone calls a limited hangout and so on. You get films like Oliver Stone's JFK, which, you know, causes the Assassination Records Review Board. Do you recall, yeah. I think the New York Times had written when they were critiquing this conclusion, they said, well, so there was two people shooting at JFK at the same time. So what? I mean, it was Lee Oswald, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean... Uh, oh, yeah, before, amazing. Libby, you mentioned something about organizing all these interviews. Well, you know, without naming a name, was there anyone who said, no, they're, they're afraid still? They were too afraid to talk or go on camera? There, yes. there, there are people who have said that they, for various reasons, don't want to go on camera. There are researchers who went on camera a while ago, but they got so attacked by the research community, they don't want to be part of it anymore. There are people who just, feel like they want to keep living their lives normally. And well, think about the Harper's it. person, Libby, I mean, without mentioning her name, I mean, who did all the work on Sir Han and, you know, on the, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 And they she, just, she's someone she, who's, she's, she's definitely terrified and doesn't want to go on. Yeah. I mean, day. yeah. I mean, early on, she wrote an amazing, uh, uh, wrote an amazing <laughs> piece. And then she also helped get a book that had been squashed, published. And now she just wants no part of it. Um, yeah, that was another part of her life. She doesn't want to be involved in it anymore. Okay, so you, you did come across that, right? I can think of a couple of people that, for instance, I think Sandy Serrano was, you know, very hesitant after. If you ever listened to what she went through, I'm sure you did. You know, you could see why somebody would be hesitant. We got the last interview. We had the with last Sandy. interview with her. Oh, okay, wonderful. You know, and I know in JFK research, there's a, a researcher who was on the ARB, Doug Horn, who has just said, look, he, he's retiring. He's on to other things, and he just doesn't want to go over it anymore. And he's written a couple of books. So a, a couple of people have retired, or, or, you know, a couple of people said it's just not for me. But um, I was just interested because, um, you know, if you think about the number of uh, witnesses or people around the John Kennedy uh, that met untimely demise, you know, you mm. can say, well, it's coincidence or not. But if you say or not, um, like I think somebody said, like, if you know, in the movie that they, they killed the president, they won't think twice about knocking you off. Right. That was Isaac Ferris, Martin Luther King's nephew. Yeah, I mean, there's, it was very, very, it was not good for longevity, uh, longevity at all. If you were a witness that day in Dallas and you came forward to tell your story, other than seeing Lee Harvey Oswald do it, something like 90 people had untimely well, deaths. No one identified except the one guy. There's no eyewitness identifying. Well, Oswald. that's what I was. But the but the point is, no, I understand. But the, yeah, the, yeah. Even if you didn't come forward, if if they knew you were out there, 
you know, you 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 bought the bullet. Well, even and, in yeah, this, I mean, yeah. yeah, in this day and age, I can think of somebody I'm very suspicious of. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Michael Hastings, journalist who wrote on the U.S. military? I think for Rolling Stone, whatever. His car yes, yes. untimely blew up. I mean, that's very suspicious. And uh, mm-hmm. you know what? What we can do about it? I don't know. But um, well, that's the thing. You know, that's what these, each of these four guys, Len, they knew that what they were doing could, would most likely lead to their death, and they did it anyway. And I and I think the lesson is to to take inspiration from them, because if if enough of us are that courageous, then they can't stop us all. You know. We all have to, you know, take inspiration from them, not think that death is, you know, uh, the, the worst thing that there is. You know, it's worse to live in a state of fear. It's worse to live in a totalitarian society. You know, it, it's, it's worse to see, you know, to have the idea that your kids could grow up in some form of, you know, slavery or in, in indenturedness uh, or, you know, in some kind of high tech dystopia. And so, you know, people have to activate no matter what the possible consequences and nonviolently resist this, uh, and, and, you know, and do it with alacrity and speed. And these guys are a great example. What they were going for represents what real progressivism is. And, you know, that's colorblind. It's anti-war. It's, you know, it, it's about economic justice. And, and these, uh, that, that has been lost from the left. And, and it's these guys were all about that. And if we take from their example, you can see why they were shot, uh, because what they were talking about was the most powerful stuff that mankind knows about. It goes back, you know, to Jesus and before. So it's that's that's what we need to to focus on, what these guys were focusing on. One of my questions that you kind of half answered already, I was going to ask you about the title. It says, The Four Died Trying. Do you want to describe what they were trying to do? Well, Libby went over it briefly, but, you right. know, for, they, but, but, yeah, but basically, in a nutshell, you've got, I mean, Kennedy is going up against every major power sector in society. He's fought against U.S. Steel for trying to fix prices. He's gone up against his own military establishment on tw- two occasions over Cuba, refusing to invade Cuba, saving the world, by the way, from nuclear annihilation, which, you know, because we now know that there were nuclear weapons already stationed and ready to go there. And there were 50,000 Soviet troops. This could have led, if anyone else had been president at the time, it could have led to complete disaster for the whole earth. So he refused to invade Cuba twice. And then he's, you know, making backdoor deals both with Castro and with Khrushchev. I mean, he, he's talking about canceling the oil depletion allowance, you know, which is something that, you know, people like H.L. Uh, Hunt and Clint Murkison uh, and, and their representative in the Congress, Lyndon Johnson, uh, he's been the vice president, you know, are, are all about uh, one of their, you know, things that they live for. And so this guy managed to upset just about everybody in power. And, and so he did, but he, you know, he was like, look, it is my job to represent the people. So he, he saw that is his duty. He quoted Truman saying that, you know, there are, uh, you know, about 15 million people who have the, all of their interests represented in Congress. I'm supposed to represent the other 150 million who don't have a lobbyist in Congress, uh, you know, and, and, and Malcolm X was going to was embarrassing the the U.S. Uh, in the world court. He was planning on bringing charges uh, of human rights violation charges in the same way that 
South Africa was being brought up on charges for apartheid or, and, you know, uh, Portugal was for its treatment, you know, for its, uh, what it did and was doing in Angola, et cetera. And, and this would have been, you know, a tremendous embarrassment to the, the, to the U.S. At, at that time during the Cold War, you know, for it would just have been a propaganda coup that they didn't like. And he was going to join forces with Martin Luther King. There were talks going on about that. And he had completely, you know, altered his position. He was becoming a really an amazing force on the earth. When you hear him speaking in front of the Oxford Union uh, you know, at, at Oxford University, you know, just debating so beautifully um, on these issues and talking and saying, you know, I don't care what color you are, as long as you want to change the miserable condition that exists on this earth. I mean, you know, this guy was too strong a leader. He had to go. And of course, Martin Luther King, as Libby says, not only was he, you know, coming out against the Vietnam War and lending all of his moral authority to that, but he was organizing a poor people's campaign that was going to be across racial lines. This is the thing that the power structure hates the most. They cannot stand the idea of people getting over artificial divisions like so-called race and coming together and seeing their own true interests as, you know, citizens, as workers, as, you know, regular people. And, you know, that's just like, it's too much. It's too terrifying. And, and this guy was planning an occupation of Washington, D.C. until the Congress did something about poverty. And they just did not like that idea. They, that was just that was a catalyst for sure in his death. He had to go before he could lead that. It ended up happening. And my father was on the scene kind of trailing behind Jesse Jackson. My dad worked for the Justice Department. But it didn't have the, the force that it would have had with Martin in charge. Bobby, not only was he running, you know, in, in the wake of Eugene McCarthy for various reasons as the as a peace candidate uh, against uh, the Vietnam War, but he was, you know, suddenly talking about things like how the gross national product doesn't represent the interest, doesn't fairly account for or correctly account for what people really need. And, it, and, it, and that, you know, we have to rethink the whole, he's the one who suggested to Martin Luther King that he bring the poor to Washington, you know? So this, uh, I mean, this guy is going to become president. He's got a completely, everything that he had been thinking has now come into fruition in ter- after his brother's death. He is becoming a real moral force in the world. And, you know, he's privately investigating his brother's death. He knows that it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald. He's not going to say it out loud. But he knows it wasn't, and he's going to uh, he's going to look into that. He's going to if he gets the presidency, he's going to you know use that power to uh, you know really go after the guys who did it. So these the last thing these guys want is is he him as as the president. So they do another one of these public executions. You know this one's a little bit more sophisticated and and uh, you know and has different kind of elements to it. But, you know, this is what they died trying to do. You know, that's why the, the title is Four Died Trying. And, yes, you can go to fourdiedtrying.com to see how to watch it. But, you know, Four Died Trying, that, you know, that's all we can do, right? All we can do in this world is die trying. Uh, and how to all. buy it. It's not how to watch it, how to buy it and watch yes, it. Yes, indeed, how to buy it and watch it, right. Right. That supports uh, your um, your effort. So That's right. I'm just uh, amazed that this got off the ground. We yeah. need it. That's right. I mean, it's, the archival footage that you see in there, which a lot of experienced researchers hadn't seen it, all of that costs a tremendous amount of money and much more money than when we started seven years ago and that people raised prices on it. So we really do need people's help in this. We need you to become... You can, we're going to have a Patreon page 
in order to keep this going, we have all this great footage. We need to keep cutting these stories and combining it with the archival. So we need people to go out and buy the, uh, the prologue and buy the chapters as they come out and get onto Patreon and become a supporter. Uh, that page will be out, uh, out soon, but you can, you can buy the prologue right now. Right. It's a great Christmas present. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, email me when that's on. I'm sure uh, when you get it near the, your conclusion or your 20th episode, I'll be just glad to have yeah. you back on to, uh, you know, entice more people to. I hope before you know. then. That's years from now. Len. Oh, years? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Well, yeah, I hope no problem. No, we have emails now, so we'll keep in touch. Um, you, just previously, I just making some notes. You mentioned the oil depletion allowance. I don't know if people knew this because I didn't. I was looking at some of the stats and figures on it, and the the oil magnets, the big people in Texas and that, they were going to lose up to 30%. I saw some charts said that the low end was 15, but as much as 30%, that's how much they were going to lose doing this oil depletion allowance, which the government was just chipping in. They were saying, oh, we're looking for new oil. We got to, you know, help us out, right? You know, you're your own company. You make your profit, help yourself out. And uh, I was going to add a footnote that I thought, when I was after I watched this, I thought that it was the four that died trying to make this world a better place, because That's I got right. the impression that they weren't only thinking of the U.S. They were thinking oh, of no. the U.S. and the rest of the world. And I think that's why, that's right. you know, President Kennedy is admired. There's statues, there's streets named after him. There's um, you know, postage stamps around the world. As well, you know, with Bobby and Martin King and maybe Malcolm to a lesser extent. But, that you know, they were... Oh, Malcolm to a big extent in Africa. They loved him in Africa. They, I mean, he was, he was going out. He was the one talking to the heads of these new African nations. But then again, so was JFK. JFK was like the unofficial ambassador to Africa because of his support for Algerian independence in 57 in a speech in the Senate. He would bring in the heads of Ghana and, you know, Tanzania and all these places. He would invite them to the White House. They, they were seeing one a month uh, of these new African leaders who, you know, just a, a, out of the period of colonization. So he was, uh, you know, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, doing the Peace Corps and the Alliance for Progress, imagine you know, creating a middle class in Latin America. That was the plan. You know, <laughs> that was Kennedy's whole purpose, ha having the U.S. lead with the Peace Corps around the world and having that be the image of America in people's minds instead of a soldier with a gun. How amazing, instead of a Pax Americana, you know, an American empire that, you know, kept the peace through fear, it, we would keep the peace in this way where everybody, all boats could rise with the tide. I mean, he really was about that for, you know, here and abroad. He was very focused on how the whole world would be. And was he anti-communist? Yes. But he wasn't this, like, this cold, this rabid, cold warrior that they try to paint him. You know, he was against, you know, slavery. He was against unfreedom. He was against totalitarianism. But he understood why people went to, you know, flirted with communism, because he saw how oppressive we could be, you know, he saw how oppressive, uh, you know, other countries, colonial countries had been. And so he, he understood why they were doing that. But he said, you know what, we have to present them with a better plan. We can't just be anti-communist. We have to be for something. And so that's what he tried to do with the Alliance and the Peace Corps. But Libby should talk about what you were just talking about, the, uh, the oil depletion allowance and the Texas connection. I mean, what we've discovered there. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's an intriguing thing because if you think about the assassination of JFK in terms of 
who had the most to lose and who had the most to benefit, a figure that's very controversial in all of this is Lyndon Johnson. And at the time of the assassination, there were also hearings going on simultaneously in Congress regarding one of his uh, uh, colleagues in business, Bobby Baker. And uh, the Bobby Baker TFX scandal was blowing up big. Life Magazine, uh, Bobby Kennedy as the Attorney General, had uh, given Life Magazine a ton of information, and they had a team of at least 12 reporters in Texas scouring the place for information and had already done uh, two or three parts, I can't remember, for the magazine on all of this. And in fact, the cover of Life Magazine that was uh, changed to accommodate the death of the president was going to be an explosive story about Lyndon Johnson's involvement. And he, uh, that weekend, assassination weekend, all the research and all the, the preprints of the story disappeared. Guys in suits were seen in the Life magazine offices taking all the information. So it's, it's one of the stories we've started to track down is really what was Lyndon's relationship to the assassination. And, of course, you know, Texas is the home of the military-industrial complex as well as the oil barons. As well uh, as as NASA. And then if you take a top ten people that were up against, like Kennedy was removed by his enemies, who were they? When you think of Kennedy's uh, NSAM 271, I think, yeah, when he said we're going to end the space race, we're going to go jointly to the moon Mm. with the Soviets. Mm. And uh, that freaked NASA out. Those guys were... I could, I shouldn't say Nazi, but they were Werner von Braun, Dornberger, <laughs> yes. right? You know, so those yes. guys did not want to share their rocketry information with the Soviets, which they hated at that point, right? Well, right, and it's basically an ICBM race, so you, well, <laughs> you know that. But uh, yeah, I mean, all that absolutely right, and you know, I mean, a lot of people have a problem when you talk about Lyndon's involvement, but I mean, he, it, it's not contradictory to say that, yeah, the CIA, the military-industrial complex, yes, the mafia was, plays a role, of course, but a junior role. But Lyndon Johnson is what Eisenhower, you know, he, of course, wanted to call, the speech was originally the military-industrial congressional complex because of how all the congressional districts benefit from having, you know, defense uh, industry in their, in their district. And so, you know, Lyndon is there, you know, arranging deals like the TFX fighter getting taken from Boeing, given to General Dynamics, a Texas company. And uh, th- this is what he's was is about. There's literally a hearing on that that the moment that Kennedy's being shot that would have that was exposing Johnson's uh, role in all this. And, and so, you know, but there's the, the point is people get worried, I think, you know, when you talk about Lyndon Johnson's role, because they're like, oh, it's kind of you know, tawdry. It's almost like saying Lee Harvey Oswald did it by himself. It's not worthy of what we're talking about in a way. Uh, but, you know, there is no contradiction. He is the embodiment of the military industrial complex. Uh, he's just, you know, and he probably was the, the time pressure was that, that Johnson was going to be removed. And as Jack Ruby says, when he's being hauled away, he says, let's put it this way. This never would have happened if Adlai Stevenson was the vice president. So, you know, what, you know, you, I'm not. No one's saying here that Lyndon Johnson was the mastermind, but he, his predicament probably was yeah. the impotent. And he was their man. He was their man. Absolutely, yeah. I, he was I their can't man. Think of the he was line, about to go to jail. Just stuck from my memory right now, but I that great song 
by Bob Dylan, where the mm. essence is, he says, you know, don't worry about who's going to take over. We got our guy there ready. And about yeah, your brother, right. don't worry, we'll take care of him too. That's right. We already got someone to take your take your place. You know, that's the line. And yeah, Johnson sworn in at 238. That's a masterful song. You know, oh, we finally know. came What's out with up? it. You know, I was never really a big fan of Bob Dylan, but when I saw that, I thought, oh, this is what you're talking about. This is why I should go up and, and respect a thousand percent. I just couldn't believe somebody who knows the topic line, you know, and my line is just, it's, mm. it's, it's just unbelievable how good that song poem is. That's, it is. I think it's the great American song. I mean, I really do. Like the great, like a great American novel. I think that's what it is in yeah. song. Yeah, that well. there's nothing that nothing that comes close to capturing kind of mid-century America to the present better than that song. You know, that is the post-war era, you know, uh, epic poem. And it's so matter of fact, it just it spells it out. If you don't if you don't believe it or it's too uncomfortable for you, that's your problem. Deal with it, because this is what happened. That's for, that's right. for sure. Now, uh, the one mentioned uh, something here. I, I had just got a thing. So I'm going to check off. The graphics, the whole look of, of the uh, documentary is very well done. So these Thank interviews you. are great, and we've, I've only seen the first hour of <laughs> 20 episodes. <laughs> so you got your work cut out for you. The one name uh, I didn't mention too much, and I'm sure it's going to be down the road, but was Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles fired by Kennedy, and now he's in the Warren Commission. And if that isn't the Fox investigating who raided the hen house... Type <laughs> and you wonder why more people weren't suspicious. I guess it took like the 60s, the assassinations, and then Watergate, and then really people having a, a real loss of trust of the government, which before they thought, well, if the government says it was only one man, I'll believe them, you know, like your father was saying, right? Lee, Ar right. Lee Harvey Oswald, that's what happened. You can read about right. it if you buy the Warren Commission. Who's going to read it, right? That was another thing he said. Alan Dulles said mm -hmm. Americans don't read. That's right. Well, Libby, do you want to talk about that? Dulles and... I mean, it, 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 I guess it goes to the false mystery idea that John was talking about earlier. It's just it's so obvious. The former head of the CIA, he's annoyed that he's been fired. So many people who were involved in the Bay of Pigs are annoyed that uh, Kennedy did not supply the needed air support. So the whole CIA, in a sense, is still behind their former director wanting to see the president uh, taken out. And, of course, what does uh, uh, Kennedy say? He wants to scatter the CIA to the wind. And so that's another thing that's not good for one's health is to uh, be critical of the CIA. That doesn't, doesn't go well for you if you're too critical of the CIA and you'd like to get rid of them. Now, I don't, per, you know, a lot of people think that Alan Dulles was the mastermind. I think he was one of the people intimately involved. I don't think he was the sole mastermind. And, and I think he was, you could look at him as the ultimate lawyer who was solving a, pro a problem for his clients. U.S. Steel and big business and his buddies in the CIA and all sorts of things. But I think other people as well had to be in on the decision to take yeah, out and, a president. And Sullivan Cromwell, that he worked for the That's big correct. of America. Exactly. Yes, he did. That's right. I mean, what you realize is it's like the entire upper levels of the establishment, bar none, and the security state. And, of course, the guy who's going to take the place of the president back when the presidency kind of meant something more than it does now when we have basic, you know, kind of empty suits or actors. 
I mean, that, the thing is, the presidency meant something then. Kennedy was making use of the powers of the presidency for the people. Uh, you know, who was going to be next still mattered. And if they couldn't, as Jack Ruby says, if Adlai Stevenson, I mean, at the very least, you know, they had to be absolutely sure of the cooperation of Lyndon Johnson. I mean, because otherwise, you know, you just have to do a thought experiment. It's like if Lyndon Johnson didn't know it was going to happen and, and it happens, and, and if he's really caught off guard and he really was wondering what's going on, he's going to say, look, we're going to absolutely get to the bottom of this, right? I mean, I don't want this to happen to me. And, you know, we're not going to just sort of say, oh, it's this one guy. But he's so ready with all the answers. By the way, he's ducking in the car. There's a picture that really clearly indicates that he was ducking. And Senator Yarbrough's testimony shows that, he was ducking down and listening to a radio during the motorcade. I mean, the guy has foreknowledge. The guy, you know, the day, night before, tries to, he goes into Kennedy's room and says, you know, I really think that, uh, you know, uh, you, you should ride with Yarbrough and, uh, and, and I should ride with uh, Governor Connolly. So, but of course, this was the whole point of Kennedy going to Texas was to kind of mend fences between the liberal and conservative wings between the Yarborough side and the Connolly side, and so there was an Air Force general or colonel that used to ride in the uh, in the car with them, and he was taken out that time. He was in the front seat in the middle, I believe. Mc McGodry McCune, mm. I forget his name now, but right. regardless, we'll look at there's well, so the much point to is talk he about. He goes into his room. He goes into his room and says, "I you, you gotta I I gotta ride with with uh, with Connolly, and you should ride with Yarborough." And he's yelling and screaming about it. And Jack's like, "That's the whole point of why I'm not going to do that." And Jackie's like, what was that all about? He's like, oh, just Lyndon. But of course, it was Lyndon trying to get his friend out of the car that was about to be riddled with bullets. So anyway, um, you know, Johnson is guilty. He's up to his neck in all this. And, uh, you know, they all had to be. They all the, the, the top levels of all of these institutions and, you know, from the press. To the the med, you know, to the um, the national security complex, FBI, of course, you know, Hoover's up to his his eyeballs. So they all were involved. They all had to say yes. This is a go. Right. Okay. Well, four died trying. Feature documentary, which is hopefully, if they keep coming as good as this, it'll be so refreshing. Twenty episodes, possibly. So. Do you have an ETA for the next episode? Chapter one should be out right in the beginning of the first of the year. Okay, January, January, early February sometime then. Okay, we'll look for that. Look, I usually offer people a time in case I didn't get something that was important. Is there something you'd like to bring up that I didn't get to yet? Gosh, I think you've done a pretty good job here. Well, let let me just briefly say that, you know, people have to be patient with us because we are, you know, we're churning these out. We're processing a tremendous amount of information, trying to find all of the, the the right leads to make the case for all of these stories. And so this isn't going to be something you can binge right away. You know, there'll be some time between each chapter. But, you know, if people, each one of these is enough to digest for a period of time. So hopefully people will go on our website, sign up for the emails to get the notifications about when the next episode next chapter as we call them will drop and you know help us out on patreon help us out by buying the episodes because that's what's going to keep us going and uh you know it's an unorthodox you know approach but we're not funded 
by, you know, Netflix or, you know, Hulu or Showtime. We are, we are, you know, doing this ourselves with the help of a, a very, you know, smart and courageous guy who happens to have some money, but, you know, we're not, we don't have all the money in the world. So we, we've got to, uh, we need everyone's help. So I hope everyone will go to fordidetrying.com and sign up uh, for information and, and buy wherever they can buy right now. And hopefully Amazon will have us on by Christmas. Yeah, imagine that, that they, uh, it could be so controversial, they have to review it. But regardless, regardless, uh, we're speaking to John Kirby, director, and Libby Handros, producer. Thank you so much for taking time to talk about this. It's something worth promoting. That's why I want to make sure I, I got that out here. So, I'll, like you said, you'd be glad to speak to me again in the future. So, just let me know Anytime. when something's worthwhile. In the meantime, we will be looking forward for the next episode sometime in early 2024. Thank you so much, Len. Really Thank appreciate you. It. All right. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we're speaking to Jim DiEugenio from Los Angeles. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. Nice to be here. Good evening. I'm glad to talk to you because your wealth of knowledge and with your website, Kennedy's and King, and being in Los Angeles, you hear about films being made. You're at the hub of uh, some activity and writer mm. for Oliver Stone. So it's good to to have your ear to the ground and say what's what's new and what's new. You know, the amazing, I, I just checked again at Amazon and Oliver's documentary, JFK Revisited, is still in the top 10 for the documentary sales on Amazon, which is, you know, really something because it was released on DVD a year ago, a year ago. I'm just wondering if it might become a perennial. I'm just wondering, because that's, that's a kind of long time. You're saying like every November it will pop right up in sales. Yeah, maybe even more than that, you know, which which would be just terrific if you ask me. Well, you're the writer, correct? Yes. Right. Yeah. So, you know, what are you going to do with all that money? <laughs> Buy an island? <laughs> no, I'm probably going to move to Vancouver. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'll keep my eye out for something in my neighborhood then. <laughs> We were just okay. talking about that, right? You know how people assume that if you if you write a book on the JFK or you do a documentary or something, that it's like, you know big bucks. But uh, it's it's really tough sledding. No. It's a very no. narrow you know market of, of people who are interested in history, and being sixty years ago, kind of ancient history, to some people would say. But you know, yeah, if you want to, there, there, believe me, there's very, very, very few books uh, in the JFK case that ever made the bestseller list, okay, and very few made money, okay, you're talking about a substantial amount of money, if you're talking about at least six figures, you know, it just doesn't happen very often at all, for a lot of different reasons, but for every, there might be like High Treason by Groden and Livingston, there might be Best Evidence by David Lifton, on the other side, of course, there's Case Closed, because they had the greatest public relations firm and the greatest public relations tour I've ever seen on that one. And Bugliosi's book didn't do very well, even though he did get a lot of hoopla in the press. It didn't go past, I think, 832 on the on the Amazon list. So there's there's just not, you know, contrary to popular belief, you know, there, there just isn't, you know, any kind of uh, rainbow in, in writing JFK books, okay? So that's just, that's just a myth. 
All right. Now, let's uh, – let, well, do you want to talk a little bit about the 60th? Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm all ears. Well, I, I just wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the 60th. Good. Good. Okay. I, of course, was in Pittsburgh for the uh, WET conference. Right before that, I did a talk in Cincinnati at the what's it called the Mercantile Library. Okay, so I was back east for these things. But I think it, we should note that this was not a blowout like it was at the 50th. We had three big things going. We had the Paul Landis book. Okay, and whatever you think about the Paul Landis book, it did have an impact. I mean, you can get an article in Vanity Fair and one in the New York Times. That's, that's saying something. And he was at the WET conference. Then we had Rob Reiner's iHeart series. And that was, I think that's through about six different chapters now. We, of course, will review it when it finishes. And Rob was at this WET conference via Zoom. All right, and the third thing I think we had was what the doctors saw. This was a documentary that was made years ago when Oliver and I were doing JFK Revisited. One of the people we were talking to was Bob Tannenbaum. And Bob is a talking head on the original part of this, which was called, I think, the Parkland Doctors. They showed it at the mock trial in Houston under that name. I talked to the producer because he was there when Bob showed it to me at Bob's house. And uh, he said CBS had purchased it. But when Leslie Moonves got fired, the option ran out. In other words, it was never broadcast. They paid him some money and the option ran out and they never broadcast it. All right. So what they did is they added Doug Horn. And Matt Crumpton, Matt is one of my co-authors on this book, The JFK Assassination Chokeholds. Okay, he's an attorney from Columbus, Ohio. And those two, plus Bob Tannenbaum, are the talking heads. And what's really funny about this is that on Paramount Plus, which is where this is being shown, you can actually see JFK Revisited. Because according to Rob Wilson, the producer of JFK Revisited, there was a merger between the two, Showtime and Paramount Plus. And so therefore, if you sign up for Paramount Plus, you get to see both of them. You know, what the doctors saw and JFK Revisited. Now, Gary Aguilar is preparing a review of what the doctors saw for uh, JFK, uh, excuse me, their Kennedys and King. And I guess the fourth thing is someone you talk to for this program, Libby Handros and her director, John Kirby, who had the amazing idea. And by the way, Libby was at the WET conference also, and she showed like a 50-minute preview of uh, Four Who Tried. And that's being streamed on a number of platforms. To my knowledge, it's the first documentary ever about all four assassinations of the 60s it takes the idea from me and Lisa's book, The Assassinations. I think that was in 2003 that came out. And that was the only book I know of about all four major assassinations, which, of course, would be Malcolm, King, JFK, and RFK. And, and tying the idea that they were yes. anti-war. They were against the Vietnam War, among other things, but 
Anybody who went up against that, boom, gone. Yeah, and so that started streaming about that same week that I was in Pittsburgh. And so I think the combination of those four things did a lot so that we could prevent a blowout like we did at the 50th. So that's congratulations to those four events, okay? Thank you so much for those. And like I said, three of them were at the WEC conference. Landis, Rob Reiner, and Libby were all at the WEC conference. I have not. Have you seen what the doctors saw? No, no, I, I have it. And I've seen four uh, died trying, and I recommend that. And I've got mm-hmm. two books uh, authors have sent me, and I, I'm just bogged down with stuff. You know, maybe by this weekend, I'll get to uh, watch that, what the doctors saw, and uh, get into these other books. But there's a lot of good stuff coming out. The good thing, I think, about four died trying is it, it's... I think everybody will, you know, it's not a, a Posner type thing. It's not kind of 50-50, well, somebody said this, somebody said that, you know. No, they're, they're getting right to the heart of the matter, you know, whether you subscribe to that or not. But they're planned 20 episodes, so who knows if they're doing three or four a year and how long this will take, but the first one is, is quite good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I saw the original version of what the doctors saw, which was the Parkland Doctors. I saw that through, like I said, Bob Tannenbaum. I haven't seen the re-edited version, which added Doug Horn and Matt Crumpton. So I'll get around to seeing that. I might get in contact with the producer so they can send me a screening copy because I, I do want to see the re, the redone version of that. All right. Okay, so, good, good. Yeah, and we'll have Bob on. We'll talk about it then. All right. So let's uh, let's go to the website. Okay, um, we have a few new articles, a newcomer, Jerry Frasia. Jerry was a PhD in history in the United States, taught at several universities, and then he decided to move to Italy. I think he lives near Lake Como now, and he's he's an artist. But he's interested in the Kennedy assassination, and he wrote an interesting piece for us called The Execution of JFK extremism in defense of liberty. And what Jerry tries to do in this is he tries to take on the whole structuralist Noam Chomsky view, Alexander Coburn view of American history, that somehow JFK could not have been what we make him out to be because the powers that be would have never let it happen, okay? And so Jerry takes that on, okay? And you might want to have him on. Okay, it's an it's an interesting essay. Okay, and I think he got in, he got in contact with me, and he might be doing a part two to this. And the guy the guy is a historian by unlike a lot of people who say they're historians in this field, uh, and are not really historians. Yeah, he is really an historian. Jerry was really an historian. Then we have Joe Green's article, his commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the assassination, which he concentrates on his late friend. Well, John Judge really doesn't need an introduction. John essentially ran COPA for a number of years, and then he went to work in Congress. Now, he does, what Joe does here is a kind of survey of where we're at now, and he ends up with uh, Max Good's film, Okay, which was at the San Antonio Film Festival and Oliver's film. 
And I guess that's a way of showing how far we've come. I think because Joe lives in that area around, I think he helped get Max into the San Antonio Film Festival. And so, and I, and that's, that's was really exceptional. And I'm glad Max's film got a lot of visibility. Okay. Cause I think it's a good film. All right. About Ruth and Michael Payne, you know, it's long overdue, but it finally arrived. Now we also have an article by me, and this is called lemon and the Atlantic monthly versus JFK on civil rights. All right. And what I did is I kind of knew that of any anniversary, there's going to be people who try and do a smear job on who JFK was, okay? Because that's like the second part. That's like stage two. First, you try and disguise how he was killed, and then you try and smear the guy's uh, reputation. Then that makes it a complete murder part two, okay? And so I talked a little bit about Jeff Greenfield. He had an article at Politico. What if JFK would have lost you? Something like that. One of the really stupid, stupid. The idea that Kennedy was going to lose to Goldwater in 1964 is so utterly ridiculous that I, I don't even think it merits any discussion. Okay. I mean, JFK didn't really have to run against Goldwater because the media was going to go ahead and blast him to smithereens anyway. So it really didn't matter. They savaged. I mean, that's almost being kind. They savaged Goldwater in 1964. And I think they would have done the same thing, you know, if Kennedy would have been around. The, America just wasn't ready for an extreme right winger at that time. And, and there was not any year-long hostage crisis like there was in the Middle East, you know, f- against Carter to soften him up for a guy as extreme as Ronald Reagan. Plus, Goldwater had said some really dumb stuff, which they used against him. So I think that was just a really dumb article myself. The other one I spent more time on was the one from the Atlantic Monthly. You know, Pal Jobes owns the Atlantic Monthly. She's Steve Jobes' widow. She owns the Atlantic Monthly, and I, I think she has a large interest in Axios. Okay, so she's a kind of media maven. Now, what somebody did is something I suspected was going to be done. Many years ago, Nicholas Lemon wrote a book called Redemption, which I had read it, which I read at that time. And it's not a bad book. It's like 250 pages or something like that. But it chronicles some of the things that happened in the so-called Redeemer movement after the Civil War. That was the white Southerners in the South who were not going to accept the fact that they lost the war and how they began to terrorize local governments and former slaves and any vestige of the Republican Party because the Republican Party had been the party of Lincoln. And so some of the horrors that were done, which I reproduce in my four-part essay on the subject, the MSM, I think what the title of that was, the MSM Distorts History, the Kennedys and Civil Rights. And I used some of this stuff in that four-part essay. Reconstruction was a complete and utter failure. It's, I don't think there's any question about that today. So therefore, it had to be romanticized for the white establishment to accept it. And so Lemon did a summary of this at the end of his book. And 
one example he used, of course, was Thomas Dixon, D.W. Griffiths, and Birth of a Nation. Thomas Dixon was a white supremacist writer who wrote a trilogy of books on this subject. One of them was called The Klansman, and D.W. Griffiths adapted that into Birth of a Nation. Now, Birth of a, to say that Birth of a Nation was a, a gigantic hit doesn't even begin to summarize how big it was. For a very long time, it was the number one film in box office history. The old joke has it, it made so much money, the distributors stopped counting it. All right. And what some people don't know is that movie was premiered inside the White House under Woodrow Wilson, you know, the great progressive president. And they actually used, I think, three subtitles from one of Wilson's book, one of Wilson's history books. He was a history professor, okay, at Princeton, all right, for the film. Can you imagine that? It, it, amazing. Now, the other one that came along and that replaced Birth of a Nation as the box office champion was another romance about Reconstruction and the Civil War. And this, of course, was called Gone with the Wind. And Gone with the Wind, that version of Reconstruction, which is not as extreme as Birth of a Nation, it has a softer tone to it. That really came from a guy named William Archibald Dunning, okay, the, who was a history professor at Columbia. He wrote one book about Reconstruction, but he taught a whole bunch of writers who then went and wrote other books about Reconstruction, so many that this was called the Dunning School. It dominated the picture of Reconstruction that students read about in college and high schools. And Gone with the Wind is a pretty good example of it, you know, where, you know, somehow all the uh, black servants are kind of happy with their role in life. Okay, there really isn't any uh, trouble uh, about it, you know, and there's South divides up between the scallywags and the carpetbaggers. And Reconstruction was a horrible thing, sending all those Union troops into the South and the South will rise again. And that's, that's almost pure Dunning School romanticism that Margaret Mitchell used in that huge bestseller of a book. Okay, and then, of course, David Selznick cast Clark Gable as Rhett Butler and Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara. And it became, it was the box office champion for decades. And I wouldn't be surprised that if you translated for inflation what the gross was on Gone with the Wind, I would still bet it would be in the top five. You know, that's how huge of a hit it was. And that's how much of an impact it had on American culture. Now, this view of Reconstruction was not seriously challenged until the late 50s and the early 60s. The first guy who took a whack at it was an academic named Kenneth Stamp in his book called The Peculiar Institution, all right? The second guy was John Hope Franklin in his book, Reconstruction After the Civil War. Stamp wrote his book in 56, which is the same year Profiles and Courage came out, and Franklin wrote his book in 1961. Stamp took on the Dunning School directly. He became kind of like the standard bearer in those early days. 
and he wrote two other books uh, called The Era of Reconstruction in 65 and Reconstruction and Anthology of Revisionist Writings in 69. He was the co-editor on that. But it really was not until the arrival of Eric Foner, the famous scholar, I think he was at Columbia at the time, in the late 70s and early 80s, that the Dunning School was completely overturned. Now, how does this fit into the Atlantic Monthly article? The writer of this article, a woman named Jordan Virtue, went ahead and read Lemon's book, in which he criticizes, profiles in courage, I think, if you ask me, at the expense of, of Thomas Dixon, because he only spends two sentences on Woodrow Wilson, Tom, Thomas Dixon, and D.W. Griffith in the White House, he spends the last four pages of his book on profiles in courage. Okay, well, what happened is that Lemon took out after Kennedy because of his characterization of two people in his book, okay, in this one chapter of his book. Adelbert Ames, who was a, uh, a Union general who then became appointed governor of Mississippi, and Lucius Lamar, a Confederate soldier from Mississippi, and later a senator, and he became a Supreme Court justice. Lemon criticized Kennedy's treatment of those two people. In my opinion, he was correct about Ames. I think he's a little bit unfair to Kennedy about Lamar because Lam Lam Kennedy doesn't make any bones about it that Lamar advocated secession. And they also took out, in the Atlantic Monthly, they took out the two of the main points of why he wrote about Lamar, which is about his long and powerful eulogy for Charles Sumner, who was a radical Republican, and his opposition to the Bland-Allison Act, the coining of silver, okay, and which he did that against much opposition in the state of Mississippi. All right. Now, Kennedy was not a professional historian. To him, it was like a hobby to him. All right. And he used a Dunning disciple. Claude Bowers as one of his sources, you know, which is an understandable mistake because the Dunning School was so wildly successful for so many decades. And the rebellion against that was just starting, okay, at this time. But what, what Lemon did was something very weird in his book. He tried to somehow criticize Kennedy's civil rights record based on his misinterpretation of the Dunning School. I'll give you an example. He says that the area in which Profiles in Courage was published, 56, 57, was a period of change and he praised Eisenhower for sending troops to Little Rock during the crisis at Central High. And he prefaces that with the Brown versus Board decision of 1954. Now, when I read this, I began to smell something very odorous, okay? Because Eisenhower only sent those troops to Arkansas after the students had been terrorized for something like 21 days because Eisenhower had been snookered 
by Governor Orville Faubus, a redneck governor, okay, who was intent on not letting those kids in and not obeying the Brown versus Board decision. So after this constant terrorization of those students and his humiliation in the press, Eisenhower had no choice uh, but to send in the troops. This is distinctly different from what Kennedy did at the University of Mississippi and the University of Alabama, where he had federal marshals and troops there at the time. All right. The black students came on campus. All right. Um, secondly, Eisenhower tried to talk Earl Warren out of voting for Brown versus Board. Michael Beschloss discovered that. Okay. It's all over the web. I don't know how, you know, how, how somebody could have missed it. All right. And in fact, in the 1956 Arthur and Lucy case, at the University of Alabama, he Eisenhower stood by and watched that poor women woman really literally being driven off campus. There were riots there, and they and they were pelting her with rocks. Now the clincher is she had a court order, and he still let that happen. So this idea that somehow Eisenhower was following the Brown versus Board decision is utter hogwash. Not no way at all. Now, Lemon then says in his book that it must have been clear to Kennedy that a systematic change was on the way. This is almost a joke. Systematic change. Who is he trying to kid? In eight years in the White House, Eisenhower and his attorney general filed 10 lawsuits in eight years, one a year. Okay. I say that because. The last two were filed on the last day that he was in office. So obviously he wanted to get the number in the double digits. Okay, he didn't want it to stay at eight. Now, when Attorney General Robert Kennedy entered office, he doubled that number his first year. Let me say that again. Robert Kennedy doubled that number in his first year. In other words, he filed 20 in just his first year in office. By 1963, the number of lawyers in the Civil Rights Division of Department of Justice quintupled. It went up by a factor of five, okay? Now, a very interested and educated jurist was Frank Johnson, who was on the federal court in Alabama. He was very much in tune with doing something about civil rights in this country from way back in the 50s. This is what Frank Johnson said about the change from Eisenhower to Kennedy. There was almost an immediate and dramatic change. He was like electricity compared to Eisenhower. He put the nation on notice that there were changes that were long overdue. That's a Southern judge saying this. All right. Now, Lemon also tries to go ahead and make something of Kennedy's vote for the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Now, let me preface this. Eisenhower put this bill up to Congress partly because of his humiliation at the hands of Orville Faubus. He didn't want to appear to be so one-sided that he would actually let Faubus get away with what he did. So he sends up this bill. Now, Eisenhower and Nixon were not interested in civil rights. What they were interested in doing was splitting the Democratic Party over the civil rights issue. 
splitting it from the northern liberals versus the southern conservatives. That's one of the reasons he sent it up there. Johnson, who was a Senate majority leader to that time, knew that people like the southern senators like Richard Russell and Strom Thurmond were never going to go along with this unless he watered it down. So what Lemon says is that Kennedy voted for a watered-down version of the Civil Rights Bill in 1957. What he doesn't say is that Kennedy didn't want to vote for the bill precisely because Johnson had watered it down so much. Okay, that's leaving out half the story, and it's the, it's the most important part. Okay, Johnson had to send two of his assistants up to Kennedy's office to lobby him to vote for it. He still didn't want to vote for it. Johnson had to actually go to his office himself and lobby him to vote for it. And then he still didn't want to vote for it, but he called these lawyers back in Boston and they said, look, you're at least going to get the Civil Rights Commission out of this, even though it's not going to be very powerful. And in fact, it was worse than that. It was utterly powerless because Eisenhower never backed any of the suggestions that came out of the Civil Rights Commission. But that's how they got Kennedy to vote for it. All right. So what Lemon's book tries to do is it tries, in my opinion, it sort of like tries to color Kennedy's true civil rights record with the mistake he made in that one chapter in Profiles and Courage. In the Atlantic Monthly, that article goes a little bit further and says, trying to explain that, well, maybe Kennedy fell for the Dunning School, but, quote, he also aspired to higher office and needed to appeal to white Southern voters. Again, this is utter and complete hogwash. Okay, consider these facts. In 1956, the year Profiles and Courage was published, Kennedy made a speech in New York endorsing the Brown versus Board decision. In other words, what Eisenhower and Nixon didn't do. He endorsed the Brown versus Board decision. He specifically said, we might alienate Southern support, but the Supreme Court decision is the law of the land. That speech was covered on page one of the New York Times, February the 8th, 1956. Therefore, a lot of the country, including the South, had to have been aware of what Kennedy was, was saying. All right. But it's even worse than that, because in 1957, Kennedy went to Jackson, Mississippi, and he said the same thing. The Brown decision must be upheld. Can you imagine saying that in the Deep South? All right. But he did. So this is just nonsense that he was trying to appeal to white Southern voters. As one guy who wrote a book on Kennedy's civil rights program said, it was at this point that Kennedy began to lose support in the South and to get angry letters about his support for the Brown decision. All right. How these guys missed this is really incredible to me. All right. But also in the Atlantic Monthly story, she also says that on November 22nd, 1963, Oswald shot and killed Kennedy in Dallas. So in other words, in one article, in one supposedly liberal magazine, you get both the official story on Kennedy's death, which we know is complete crap, and you get a smear of Kennedy, okay, his civil rights record in that one article. Okay, I'd like to talk to Powell Jobes about this. Now, here's the bottom line. No one has ever said anything. No one has ever discovered anything about Kennedy actually having a kind of racist bone in his body. 
It's just not there. I've read so many books on this subject, okay, in preparation for that four-part series, and I couldn't find anything, even from the anti-Kennedy books. But why would Kennedy pick Abraham Bolden out of a crowd to guard him in his Secret Service detail if he was a racist? Why would he sign the first affirmative action order in American history, which he did in March of 1961, 45 days after his inauguration? Now, I don't know if I've said this before, but on the day Kennedy was inaugurated, that evening, he called Doug Dillon, his secretary of the Treasury, and he said, why weren't there any black faces in that Coast Guard parade today? Now, first of all, let me ask this. If you've attained what has been the goal of your life for about the last four years, and you're supposed to be celebrating that moment in public, what kind of a guy brings up something like that on the night of their inauguration? I can't imagine anybody else doing that, okay? But he did. And so Dylan said, I don't know. And Kennedy said, well, find out. And I think they later discovered that the Coast Guard had not admitted an African-American student something like four or five years. And so this got Kennedy's antenna up. And at his first cabinet meeting, he said, I want everybody to put together a graph about how many people of color are in your department, both how many and where they're at in the hierarchy. And I want you to bring it to the next meeting. So they did. And Kennedy was taken aback because A, there were so few, and B, they were all concentrated at the lower rungs, you know, like in clerical and custodial work. And so that's what made Kennedy then go ahead and sign the first affirmative action order in American history, all right, 45 days after he became president. You know, just just imagine, Eisenhower had eight years to do it. He had eight years to do it, didn't do it. Kenny did it in 45 days, all right? That order, by the way, only applied to hiring within the government bureaucracy. Kennedy expanded it later on to include all contracting that was done by the government. So in other words, if you made a product that was used, if you were a private contractor who made a product that was used by the government, you now had to follow affirmative action guidelines. And so for the first time, you now had textile factories in North Carolina hiring African-American employees. And this is why they did it, was because they did so much contracting, making clothes for the armed forces, that it was either that or they closed their doors. Same thing with defense contractors, okay? Or if you made briefcases for people in the State Department or whatever, you had to now start hiring people of color. That had never happened before. You know, Eisenhower could have been president forever. It would never would have happened. But Kennedy then went along and he got his, he, he got a department officer in each you know, like the Defense Department, the State Department, they now checked on hiring practices and it was a place to file complaints to each department. So in other words, it wasn't just the signing of the order. It was a follow-up on it. Kennedy then had John Kenneth Galbraith sponsor him as a membership of the Metropolitan Club, upper-class, all-white club, and Kennedy made a big deal about refusing the membership because they had declined service to a visiting African 
diplomat. So in other words, he was doing this kind of thing in public. He then announced that neither he nor any member of his administration would attend functions that were at segregated facilities. Again, first time that ever happened by an American president. Now, at the end of the article, I say, I'm, look, I'm not going to go through this whole thing because I did it already. And there's a link to my four-part article. And the best book on this subject is by a guy named Carl Brower. It's called John F. Kennedy and the Second Reconstruction. See, what happened to the whole civil rights movement in the United States was that it didn't really start until Kennedy. And as long as Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were alive, then it was still going to continue after Kennedy's death. But one by one, as they were mowed down, and then this resulted, of course, in the election of Richard Nixon in 1968. Nixon went ahead and instituted something called the Southern Strategy, which was an appeal to white backlash and racism. And he used that to convert what was called the Solid South, that usually voted Democratic, to convert the South into a bastion of the Republican Party. Kevin Phillips was one of the guys who wrote about this. I think it was called the Emerging Republican Majority. And he worked for Nixon, and Nixon formulated this Southern strategy. And that's what more or less stopped the long-delayed civil rights movement in the United States pretty much dead in his tracks. And that, see, and that's the real story of what happened to civil rights in the United States, all right? And you won't find that talked about in the Atlantic Monthly. But that is a much more honest and accurate rendition of what really happened, okay, to the civil rights movement in the United States. The combination of those four assassinations, okay, with Nixon's Southern strategy essentially went ahead and it was stone dead more or less after that. Okay. So um, let, let me, uh, you want me to answer a couple of questions? Uh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Okay. So let's, uh, you know, these things never stop coming. All right. Well, that's a good sign that people are listening. Right, right. God, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're paying me so much for this, Len. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> you're making a lot more money than I am off those proudy t-shirts. <laughs> I don't. I don't have any proudy T-shirts. <laughs> I do have Black Op Radio ones. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's see. This is December the sixth. Okay. This is December the eleventh. Okay. So I'm going to try and take these as close as I can. To the order of what they sent. Okay. December the 3rd. Zakir Kabraya. Greetings from Bangladesh. Oh my God, Len. The worldwide reach of Black Op Radio. Is there any literature available about the Soviet investigation of the JFK case? I think that there was. I think that there is. And I think that they concluded that... It was 
a Southern oilman's conspiracy. I don't know how they concluded that, but I think that's in the book One Hell of a Gamble. Well, I heard Vladimir Putin on TV talking to a reporter, and he said, we know that it was the American security state that uh, assassinated Kennedy. Well, that, 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 that's his opinion. I'm, right, I think, but that's Vladimir Putin. Right. I think he's talking about back in the 60s. Well, Putin's probably more correct than this was. Is it credible information RFK asked Khrushchev to help investigate the JFK? I've never seen that anywhere. I know he sent that letter. Him and Jackie sent letters to the Kremlin telling them that they knew that this was a large domestic conspiracy and that Johnson was much too beholden to big business. So the taunt would have to be put on hold and then he would drop out of the White House, run for office and run for president. Okay, that's as far as I know about the cooperation with the Soviets. Are there is there any literature that investigates the alleged Israeli role in the JFK case? Yes, that is in uh, Michael Collins Piper, his book, Final Judgment. Is there a credible research about Permanent's link to Israel? Yes, there is. That's, um, but hold on a minute. There's two books about Permanent and Israel by the same guy, Mikhail Mehta, an Italian author. The first one was published, I think, in 2018. It's called CMC, which stands for Central Mondial Commercial, the Italian Undercover CIA and Mossad Assassination, a Station, rather, and the Assassination of JFK. I read that, and that's a, that's a pretty good book. That's one of the best books you'll find on the whole Italian political scene from about the 1950s on. Now, he wrote an update to this, which I have not read. And I think this was in 2021. And this was called Accomplishing Jim Garrison's Investigation on the Trail of the Assassins of JFK. All right. Okay, that has an afterword by Jim DeBross, who I think has been on your show. He wrote a book about the JFK assassination and the media. So those those are the two books about Permandex's relationship to Israel. Okay, those are the only two that I know of. All right, let's go Mike Ramsdale. Here is a question you can pass on to Eugenio. I've been looking at pictures of the limousine and Conley's body position in his seat. It seems to me that for the ludicrous magic bullet to go from Kennedy into Conley, in the place that the Warren Commission says, it would have to go through the seat back of Connolly's seat. Yours and Jim's thoughts. You know something? I'm I'm not really sure about that. Okay, that that might be true, but you know I would have to check on that. You know if that would be completely accurate. That's a very interesting thought, though. Okay, I'll I'll try and do a little bit more checking on that later. Thank you. All right, from Liverpool, England, Mike Murphy. Okay, well, Len, you're getting a real international reach here. I wonder if we're going to get somebody from uh, India next. Okay, no, I think the rest of them are from the United States. Okay. As might phase it, the world and its mother knows that Conley always claimed he was not hit by the first bullet, but after, which is quite a claim. But also in his first interview on the 27th in November, 
the bedside interview in Parkland Hospital, which was recorded on TV and can be found on YouTube. He said, we had just turned the corner. We heard a shot. I turned to my left and I was sitting in a jump seat. I turned to look in the back seat. The president had slumped. He said nothing. Almost simultaneously as I turned, I was hit. Number one, he claimed in his bedside interview he saw the president had slumped, then almost simultaneously he was hit. So he heard the shot, turned to the president, slumped, look at the Z film, how long has it taken from the car showing Kennedy emerging from the Stemmons road sign. Everyone says he is hit to when he's leaning towards his wife. And how fast does a bullet travel? Okay, I guess we're concentrating on the Z film tonight, you know, which is fine by me because it's a pretty important piece of evidence. All right. So now he does turn. He does turn left. I don't think there's any question about that. All right. He does turn left and he does then turn around. So I think what he's what the questioner is asking about is how long it took him to do this. Okay, so here we go. Conley, Conley is not turned around yet, but he does turn around at about 2.30, 2.45, and then he does turn back to, I think I see the question, because he doesn't turn back until about 3.18. So there's some very serious questions about then when Conley was actually hit. My main point, he never in any other subsequent interviews claimed he saw the president had slumped. Indeed, he claimed in his Warren Commission testimony, he didn't see Kennedy from his first shot onwards in Dealey Plaza, which leads to the question, was he on the same medication as Dean Andrews or was he more likely got to? If I may speculate at this point, maybe a good intentioned friend and fellow politician, say maybe, for instance, someone like LBJ, and warned that the visual evidence contradicting the preconceived conclusion of the Warren Commission's investigation might be bared in mind in Mexico alleged Oswald visit with the Russian assassin and advised him to compromise and drop the visual evidence and keep the hearing evidence that way you could save the world from nuclear war and save political face and blame the assassination on Oswald, who was already dead, and then allow someone like Dale Myers to suggest or claim that the bullet that hit the president from behind also hit Conley in his back and went through him, broke his rib and his right wrist, got embedded into his left thigh, only came out later and fell into a hospital stretcher. And more to the point, say the shot that Conley heard was the take shot, which brings to mind the late Vince Salandria saying that you are allowed to think a coup d'etat took place in 1963, but you're not allowed to know it. Keep up the good work. I listen to Black Up Radio every week and would value your opinion or, for that matter, lens on my view of the November 27th, 1963, John Conley bedside interview in Parkland Hospital, whether you agree with me or not. You know, I think Millicent Craner actually brought this whole issue up a long time ago about how they edited future future segments of this interview, the bedside interview, in order to cut that out. So Mike might be onto something here. And looking at the film again, Conley really doesn't look back till about 250, 270, more like it. He works all the way back. Okay. And then 
he turns around and falls into his wife's arms at around 328 or 330. So he has a point there. So did they get Conley to change his or at least curtail his story? Good question. All right. Subject, the Eastern Hills High School Band. Hello, Jim and Lynn. Thanks for the shows these past months. And as always, thank you, Lynn, for Black Op Radio all these many years. Great to hear the thoughts that you and Jim had about the anniversary. Can't email in without a question. Jim, what say you and Lynn about the KVTV live footage of Kennedy's Fort Worth breakfast speech and the KVTV broadcasting filling up airtime beforehand? How the president broke the cardinal rules of security two or three times in speaking to the crowd, the specific motorcade route back to Carswell Air Force Base from the Texas Hotel, and a detailed history lesson about President McKinley's assassination in Buffalo. You know, I think I did actually see that, and I thought it was pretty darn dumb myself. Saw an interview during the anniversary with a fellow who was a member of the Eastern Hills High School Band that played Hail to the Chief at the breakfast and the ballroom when they were setting up. When they were setting up was about other assassinations. It took two seconds for the interviewer to use the word coincidence and change the subject to how the band got invited to play there that morning. Pretty clever, huh? I mean, really, sometimes you think, and I'm exaggerating a little for hyperbole, but sometimes you think that the whole MSM, you know, is in tune on this story, you know, almost automatically, you know, as a reflex. Yeah, so I, I agree. I did see that. And, and I thought I thought it was pretty dumb myself. Okay, but that shows you how sold out they are. All right, um... Let's see, let me arrange these the right way. There's two on December the 11th. All right, Arthur Klein, December the 11th. I have watched the entire footage I have in that hallway, which is much longer, and there are other interesting personalities that move through it. It amazes me how this guy shows up. Okay, he's talking about the Jesse Curry interview in the hallway of the DPD, where he's got all these reporters around him. I think he's talking about who Oswald was, did they know about him, et cetera, and all that. And there's a strange guy who comes up behind him who doesn't look like he's dressed like he's a reporter. He looks like he's out fishing or something. And this is what he says. It amazes me how this guy shows up, hides behind the chief of police, inserts very specific things into the conversation, and then leaves abruptly. Also, he doesn't have a camera or a pad to take notes with. I would love to know who he is. I'm happy to send you the entire hallway sequence and the underground footage of before, during, and after the Oswald murder, if you have not seen it. Please let me know if you or anyone else, we might ask, ever figures the identity of Mr. White Hat. Okay, so I'm leaving this open to everybody who wants to take a look at that hallway footage and figure out who this guy is. He is an interesting character. All right, thank you for all you do in the name of truth and justice. In gratitude, Arthur. All right, um, Arthur, if you want to send it to Len, I'll be glad to take a look at it. All right. Okay, second one from December the 11th. All right, before asking my question to Mr. DiEugenio, I want to thank him for the extensive work on the Kennedy assassination. The country, if not the entire world, owes him a huge amount of gratitude, extending all the way to Liverpool and uh, Bangladesh for tonight. 
My question concerns a paragraph on page 152 of his book, Reclaiming Parkland, which I am now reading for the second time. On this page, he discusses David Theory's concern about Oswald having borrowed and used his library card. Searching for any photos of Ferry with Oswald, uh, Ferry called Roy McCoy right after the murder of Kennedy. McCoy wasn't home, so he talked with McCoy's wife and asked him about any photos her husband might have had during his civil, uh, civil air patrol days when Ferry was in charge of their squadron. All right, this is according to the Eugenio, documented by an FBI report dated November the 11th, 1963. My question, how could the FBI report have been written November the 11th when Kennedy was not assassinated until November 22nd? Okay, uh, well, the answer is I made a mistake on that in the text. The document is 1127, and I actually put that in Probe magazine when we were publishing it in the July-August issue of 1998, and it's on page 17, the actual document. Now, of course, what Ferry is trying to do there is to track down any connection between him and Oswald. He's trying to eliminate it uh, before anybody can get to it, which, of course, that's an obstruction of justice. Okay. And since the McCoy family called the FBI and told them about it, Ferry should have been arrested. Okay. But he was not because we know Jagger Hoover didn't have any interest in who really killed Kennedy anyway. All right. Um, Sean Kane. Sean Kane has a um, podcast. I think it's called What About You or something like that. Uh, enough out of you. Thank you for all the work you do. I'm a longtime listener to you and Lynn on Black Op Radio. I respect all the, respect all the work you guys do. My question is, why did Joan Mellon, who does some good work and who I respect, why would she trust anything as unprofessional as a, a professional liar like Sam Halpern. He goes along with the uh, whole RFK was knowledgeable about the CIA attempts to kill Kennedy. In fact, had a guy actually working that for him. Whereas you have established that RFK did not believe the Warren Commission about his brother, but felt he needed the office of the presidency to reopen the investigation. Okay. I heard you say one time that RFK was not human because of all the great work he was able to accomplish. And I totally agree. Uh, and I wish he would clear up RFK's name on this issue. Okay. I think Joan does some good work. I think she's utterly and completely wrong about um, Bobby Kennedy and his war against the mob. The whole thing about the JFK role in the... Uh, CIA plots to kill Castro because there wasn't any. I mean, that's that's been proven beyond any question by the release of the CIA Inspector General report. And that was that was released back in the 90s. Now, that report chronicles the whole journey of how they began and how they ended. Okay. It's the most complete, comprehensive report that I've ever seen on the plots, okay? And the plots went back to 1960. They were essentially Dick Bissell's idea, and Bissell then lied about this before the church committee. But if you read the report, it's pretty clear. Then he got approval from Alan Dulles, 
and that's when they were enacted. Okay, that's when they were enacted. They they actually began before Kennedy took office under Eisenhower, but in two places in the IG report, it says very clearly that no president ever had any approval or anything to do with the plots to kill Castro. Now, as far as Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy found out about the plots by accident. This was because, of course, the famous incident where Giancana called Mayhew in Vegas and he wanted a favor. One of the wiretap his girlfriend, I think it was Phyllis McGuire, her room because he suspected she was cheating on him. And so Mayhew went ahead and did it. Really dumb thing to do. The guy installing the bug was caught. And since wiretapping was an FBI federal crime, Hoover found out about it. And it was Hoover who had to tell Kennedy about what was going on, A, with the wiretap, and why, because Bobby Kennedy wanted to know, well, why would Bob Mayhew agree to this favor for this criminal who I'm trying to put in jail? And so they came out with it, and they said, well, that's because <laughs> Mayhew asked Giancana, Traficante, and Rosselli at the CIA's behest to assassinate Fidel Castro. All right? So that's how Bobby Kennedy found out about it by accident. So then when he found out about it by accident, he then wanted a briefing by the CIA. And that's when he got the whole story. This was in the summer of 1962. And so his two briefers, I believe, were Larry Houston. Larry Houston was the combination chief lawyer and inspector general for the CIA. And I think Sheffield Edwards was the other guy with the outgoing Western Hemisphere chief. And they lied to him and said that this was all over. Now, you want to know how bad the CIA is? Right after that meeting, they wrote a memo to Helms saying that we lied to the attorney general because the plots are ongoing with Harvey and Johnny Rosselli. Okay. This was supposedly phase two of the plots. All right. This was between Harvey and Roselli. Those were ongoing till 1963. And then, of course, you had the Amlash plot. The Amlash plot was stage three. Okay, and that was beyond when Kennedy was assassinated. That was under Johnson. So the plots extended all the way from Eisenhower to LBJ, the plots to kill Castro. And the presidents were always kept out of it. Now, there was a guy named Sam Halpern who was very unhappy with the fact that the CIA was being blamed for these plots, okay? And so he put together what can only be called a cover story, all right? And this cover story was first exposed by David Talbot, and then it was exposed even more thoroughly by John Newman. And what Halpern was willing to do was throw a comrade of his named Charles Ford under the bus, so to speak. Charles Ford worked for the CIA, and he knew both Harvey and uh, Halpern, okay? Bobby Kennedy asked Charles Ford to do a couple of favors for him. So when the request came in, the CIA gave these two assignments to Charles Ford, okay? And one of them was a possibility of, of getting some of the Bay of Pigs prisoners back. And another one was to 
work on whether or not there was an anti-Castro group that the CIA might be interested in working with. Those were the two assignments. All right. Well, Halpern completely lied about this before the church committee. And he said that really Bobby Kennedy was using Ford as an emissary to the mob in order to go ahead and further the Castro plots. Now, what makes this so incredible is that Charles Ford was alive during the church committee. And he said, no, this is all a bunch of baloney. All Bobby Kennedy wanted to do was those two assignments. But Halpern lied, and one of Ford's depositions got lost. So we only have the second one, where he refers a lot to the first one. But Halpern kept on telling this story to people like Seymour Hirsch, okay, who put it in his crappy book, The Dark Side of Camelot, when in fact all he had to do was look in the documents and he would have found Charles Ford's second interview, all right, in which he denies all this and tells him what the real reason that he was working with Bobby Kennedy was about. But here's the capper, and it was discovered by John Newman. Halpern knew what the truth was because John found out that Halpern signed off on one of at least one of Charles Ford's memos as to what he was actually doing. And in fact, Charles Ford was working in the same department as Halpern and William Harvey because Halpern was an assistant to Harvey. And Ford worked under both of those men. So he could not have been working directly for Bobby Kennedy. And Halpern and Harvey had to know what he was, what he was doing. Okay, so it's just, it's utterly sick for Halpern to keep this bullshit story up because that, that's all it is. All right, but Halpern actually said to Seymour Hirsch, quote, Bobby Kennedy's primary purpose in dealing with Charles Ford was to do what Bill Harvey was not doing, finding someone to assassinate Fidel Castro. Now, how Seymour Hirsch kept a straight face when Halpern was saying that is really unbelievable because we know, of course, that Harvey was working with someone to assassinate Fidel Castro, and that was Johnny Roselli, okay? And the CIA had lied to Bobby Kennedy about the existence of these new plots. So it's completely wrong, I believe, for anybody, whether it's Joan or anybody else, uh, to go ahead and say that somehow these plots are to be laid at the feet of Bobby Kennedy or John Kennedy, because it's simply not true. And the documentation on this is overwhelming today. It's simply overwhelming. It's just is not an accurate statement at all. It never was. And the only reason it was allowed to go ahead was because of the classification process. And now with the ARB and the work of people like John, okay, and others, all right, now we can now expose this as the pile of excrement that it always was. Okay. All right. Thanks, Len. All right. Very good. Thank you so much for taking time for tonight. Okay. And I think keep the letters coming. Yeah. By people appreciate it. Okay. Have a good night, partner. Okay. Good night.